When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome, guys and gals, to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, attraction, persuasion, dating, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And we've got live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got people from all over the world that shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you're committed to learning and growing. We're sold out a couple months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, get in touch now. We'll send you some info so you can plan ahead. Jordan at The Art of Charm. That's me. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Austin Cleon, author of Steal Like an Artist, Newspaper Blackout, and Show Your Work. He's coming out with a nice new journal to guide you through these processes. But we wanted to talk about creativity, what it means to be original, hint, not a lot, but it's in a good way. Embracing creativity, how to steal like an artist, the importance of sharing and showing your work, daily ritual, and something called productive procrastination. Even if you're not an artist, you'll get a lot out of this. So enjoy this one with Austin Cleon. So tell us what you do in one sentence. I'm a writer who draws. Doesn't that make you a drawer? <laughs> That's a good question. It's all marks on paper in some, you know, in some way. What I do is I make I make books with pictures and I make art out of words. And so that sounds kind of enigmatic too. Really what I am is just a, a writer and an artist, I guess. And ironically <laughs> has a lot of trouble telling people what he does, even though you're a writer. <laughs> well, you know. Who draws. Yeah. It's always hard to tell people what you do, actually. I think that's almost an existential question sometimes when you're at parties and someone says, so what do you do? I, that That's such a hard question for me that I actually wrote a whole book chapter about it um, and show your work. There's a chapter called Talk About Yourself at Parties, and it's all about that question. Like, so what do you do and how, you know, you should be able to answer it quickly. And here I am failing you. So, <laughs> Yeah. So maybe skip show your work or skip that chapter and show your work when you're reading. Because was... <laughs> Well, that's a good, you know, that's a good point about self-help books is that I think a lot of times, you know, you write the book you need. I mean, show your work was kind of me trying to figure out what it, you know, the things in the books are things that I'm trying to figure out. Like, I think a lot of times people think that authors are writing exactly what they know, but I think a lot of times authors are writing what they're trying to figure out. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is the show that I need, which is why this is episode 450 something and counting, because I need a lot of work. Well, and figuring it out, you realize you never have it figured out, right? It's this ongoing process. Yeah. Um, and if you're asking good questions, you're really just going to, you know, end up coming up with more questions, right? <laughs> this is 447, actually. So I was close. So, yeah. So you, you, you've you got another, what, thousand to go? At least. Yeah, <laughs> at least. Hopefully. Yeah. 
God willing, inshallah, right? Isn't that, uh, that's how they say that? Well, I mean, you know, I've been, uh, yesterday was my 10-year blog anniversary. I've been blogging for 10 years. And, uh, you know, it was just like, it was so uneventful. blog anniversary is a word you maybe don't need to use ever. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know. It's such a nothing thing. Oh, my blog's ten year old. You know, ten years old. Who cares? Yeah, people often they'll they'll say, "Hey, you know, you've been podcasting for how long?" And I'll say eight and a half years, and they're like, "God, that's a long time." And well, not really. In when it comes to podcasting, yes. When it comes to blogging, yes. But if you think about somebody who's done something for twenty years, they're still probably ten years away from retirement. Usually, you're at your best. I would say at some point slightly before that because you because of the level of experience so eight and a half years i'm going to look back on episodes like this and be like god how did anybody listen to this how did anybody tolerate this look at how much of a noob i was listen to the quality of the work you know it's and i'm sure that's a struggle you have as an artist of any kind elaine de botton put it this way he was like if you're not embarrassed by who you were last year you're not learning anything excellent yeah i love that I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I listen to a lot of things that I do by accident. Usually, or someone will say, "Hey, you know, episode three hundred and thirty was so good." And one day I'll be listening to something, or I'll check out what they were mentioning, and I'm like, "Ugh," you know. But it's so much better than two thirty eight, and one thirty eight is unlistenable, and anything below that is just, you know, I can't even do it without cringing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are like that. Oh, I mean, you know, I gave a talk a few days ago and, you know, it went fine as, as far as talks go. But I think the things that kind of make me cringe, that's what you know you have to work on. You know, the cringe factor is really helpful when you look at your past work and you think, oh, that was really ugh. that's when you know, you know, that's what you got to work on next. You know, so I think it's biological. I almost think it's like an evolutionary thing. You know, that thing that makes you cringe. That's what, you know, you got to work on. Yeah, probably a, a little bit of a gut level sign, I would imagine. You talk a lot about creativity. It's a really interesting subject because it's one, it's totally vague, right? What is creativity? <laughs> How do we do more of it? And everyone's a critic when it comes to art in general, but especially when it comes to creativity. And one of the, the worst things you can hear as, a, as an artist or anybody who creates anything, uh, just to take the pretentiousness out of the word artist, or anybody who creates anything, one of the worst things you can hear from a critic or a fake critic usually is, oh, there's not an original, this isn't original, this is just a hack, or this is something unoriginal, or you're unoriginal, I mean, any variation thereof is, you only say that when you want to get under their skin. And you talk a lot about this because your argument, correct me where I'm wrong, is that, hey man, nothing's original. And as my law professor, property law professor said in law school, he says, if you have an original idea, there's a good chance that it's not original or it's complete crap. <laughs> yeah. And when you do see something that you think is original, a lot of times, nine out of 10 times, you know, you just don't know where it came from and you don't know the sources and it's undetected plagiarism. I think a couple of things. Art is one thing. And that's a one specific thing. Creativity is so mythologized and it's so mystified. But really, for me, creativity is just a tool. It's just something that we all have access to. And for me, my definition of creativity is just taking what's in front of you and everybody else and just rearranging it into a new solution or, you know, solving a problem with it. So, you know, my friend Mike gives the great example of like, he's like, you know, in Apollo 13, where they have to like make that air filter and they only have so much time and they have all these things on the ship but they have to like make an air filter out of all this junk, right? That's creativity. <laughs> That's That was his like definition of creativity. And I really can't expand on that that much. It's just taking what's available to you and rearranging it or making it into some sort of solution. You know, and that can be different. Of course, there's creativity in art, but sometimes there's not. I mean, you can do you can do art with, you know, sometimes you don't have to even use creativity for art. You know, there's a there's a guy named Kenny Goldsmith, and he teaches a course called Uncreative Writing, which he talks about, you know, copying stuff off the Internet and, um, you know, doing all this weird remix kind of cut up poetry. And, you know, some of my work even is just taking lines out of the newspaper, you know, so um, all these things are different. But I think this kind of this emphasis on originality that we have in this culture, I think it, you know, I think it does a bunch of things. 
you know, but the biggest thing I think it does for people who are starting out is it paralyzes them. That idea that, oh, I have to come up with something completely original, you know, it makes us do all kinds of crazy things. Like, you know, I've heard people say like, well, I don't want to read anything right now because I'm writing and I don't want to be influenced. You know, <laughs> it's it's like stuff like that. God forbid you should have a good idea from somebody who spent years thinking about it. Yeah. And then, you know, you look at the people in our culture who are doing amazing work and, you know, very few of them are actually come up with these ideas out of nowhere. I mean, and it's true in any any form. I mean, you've got someone like Kobe Bryant who talks about his basketball moves and like the way that he learned was he sat in front of the, you know, VCR and he memorized these moves and then he went on the court and he tried them out. And the thing is, is he didn't have the same body type as some of the guys that he was copying from. So he had to kind of, you know, transform the move into something of his own. You've got someone like, you know, Tarantino, who's like one of our greatest filmmakers and pretty much all of his movies are just each scene is like a homage to another movie, but then it makes this whole that's Tarantino, right? So there's like so many of these people in our culture that are influencing us and giving us all this great work. They go out and say it, you know, they're like, I'm a shameless thief. I steal from everything and everyone. And then I turn it into something of my own. Yeah, I can't even hide it, nor do I need to tell anyone because I'm sitting here talking with smart people. It's not like they're not there. Right. So it's it's really easy for me to get away with this because I play the role of host. But I think other people are afraid to do something similar where the originating party, if you will, is not there because they feel like it makes them derivative and that becomes an insult. Oh, I mean, you know, I just got done reading Judd Apatow's book, Sick in the Head, which I think you might like because it's interviews with famous comedians the way Judd Apatow, the you know, the famous comedy director, you know, he wrote and directed Knocked Up and The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And now he's like a mentor to like Lena Dunham and all those, you know, the new generation. But, you know, Judd Apatow got his start as a teenager. He pretended to be a journalist and he called up all these comedians. Like he'd get their publicist or something, say, hey, I'm uh, I'm Judd Apatow at KNLV, you know, whatever <laughs> radio station in New York. Uh, I want to interview Jay Leno, you know, and Jay Leno's publicist would say, OK, well, he's going to be in town at this time or whatever. And Judd Apatow would show up at his hotel room and he'd be 15, you know, and Jay Leno would be like, who are you? And he'd say, I'm Judd Apatow. And then, him, you know, Jay Leno and his publicist would realize, hey, this is just a kid coming to interview us. But most of the people that he had the balls to ask for an interview actually gave him an interview. And so that was the genesis of this book. And that's how Judd Apatow learned how to do comedy. He actually, when he was that young, said, I want to be part of this tribe. How do I do it? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll just interview all these guys and ask them how they do it. So, you know, he talked to Jay Leno. He talked to Jerry Seinfeld. You know, he talked to all these up-and-coming comedians. And then, lo and behold, you know, he becomes one of them. And I think that's such a beautiful story of, you know, when you're trying to start out and you're trying to join this world, you know, the first thing to do is to shine a light on the people who are doing it well. That's brilliant, of course. And how do you do this in a way that that's quote unquote fair? Right? How do you do it in right. a way that isn't just hacking other people's crap together? Like you have a Google alert set up for your name and it's like Times of India. And you're like, I wrote this article for my own website <laughs> and now it's on this other website. How do we do it in a way that's fair, that makes sense, that's actually legitimate. What's your definition thereof? Because I would imagine it can be kind of a slippery slope where you're like, oh, well, steal like an artist. All right, I'm just going to copy other people's crap and put it into a book and sell it. Well, you know, it's, so right now we're having a conversation and we're both mutually benefiting from this conversation. Like mm -hmm. you, you know, you're getting a new guest and you're doing a new show and I'm getting to talk to you and to access to all your listeners, right? So we have like a kind of mutually beneficial thing going on here. Now, when it comes to making your own work, I really think it's all about the transformation. It's all about, are you taking other people's ideas and are you doing something new with them? Are you rearranging them in some way that adds value to them, that adds value in the wider culture. So like if you're scraping someone's, you know, if you're scraping someone's article and reposting it on your blog without credit, that's crappy stealing, right? 
But if you're taking their article that they wrote and you're adding your own two cents and then you're adding, you know, half dozen other voices that you've cobbled together into a new piece, then that is something new, right? And when you talk about these kind of issues, there are a lot of people who are kind of anti-copyright or, you know, anti-intellectual property. Although I have problems with some of our intellectual property laws, I mean, I'm someone who makes a living off of copyright. I mean, my books are copyrighted, and that's how I can make money off of them. And I actually think that a lot of our laws are actually pretty well designed. And this, a lot of times people are really shocked that I talk this way because you're Mr. Steele, man. Shouldn't you be like anti-copyright or whatever? But I'm like, well, actually... There's this thing called fair use, which is a very tricky waters to swim in, and it's a hard defense to make in court. But if you look at some of the guidelines of fair use that are online, you'll actually find that the more you kind of stay within you know, reasonable fair use, the better it actually makes the work. So let's take something very concrete, like my newspaper blackout poems. So for anyone who hasn't seen these, for your listeners... What I do is I take an article from the newspaper, I put a box around a few of the words until it makes kind of a funny phrase or a, you know, a little mini haiku almost, and then I black out the rest of the article. So it almost looks like if the CIA did haiku, you know, it's (laughs) so, so like these poems, I've actually, I, I did a piece for the New York Times. They actually asked me to write about Fairy Hughes, seeing as they're the newspaper that actually, you know, make my poems out of. And I took each of the kind of things in fair use and talked about how each idea almost makes the work better. So, for example, what I'm doing with the poems is I'm transforming a piece of journalism into a piece of poetry. So right there in that transformation, I'm not like taking any kind of like intellectual or financial thing away from them. I'm just making this new thing. So there's a transformation there. There's also a thing in fair use about how much you take from the thing you're stealing from. So it's like, I only take maybe, you know, 15, 20 words out of a 500 word article, you know. And so there are all those principles, those kind of transforming principles. And the thing is, is I think that the more you kind of stick to those principles, the better it actually makes the work. So to sort of recap that for people writing on their hand or driving, it's uh, hopefully not doing both. It matters primarily, or at least first thing you should think of is, does this benefit both parties, right? Like if I'm I'm taking something from you and I'm reading it on my show, do I then say, this brilliant piece by Austin Kleon is so good, I wanted to share it on the show? Or do I just say, look at this amazing thing I just thought of that I'm not giving you credit for? Exactly. So, you know, you say, I read this, you know, I read this great thing in this book by Austin Kleon and go from there. And at the bottom line too is that you know you're not actually taking anything from the party as in you know the new york times is not losing any business because i'm making poems out of their newspaper if anything i'm giving value to their newspaper because i'm having people actually think about the paper as something that you interact with and something that you you know that you actually you know, open up and look at and can make things out of. And there's actually been some newspapers who have actually run their own newspaper blackout poetry contest because they realize, hey, if we run this contest, people will have to buy a newspaper to make a blackout poem out of it. You know, right. so yeah, good point. Kind of, <laughs> I think for me, it's just kind of a ethical gut check of like, and a lot of times I think, okay, if I was in a stuck elevator with the person I'm stealing from, what would they do? Would they give me a little pat on the shoulder and say, hey, man, you know, I saw that. That was a really good way you took that and ran with it. Or would they punch you in the face? You know? <laughs> the elevator <laughs> test. The elevator test. You know, it's like if you were locked in an elevator with the person you're stealing from, would they, you know, give you a thumbs up or would they give you a punch in the face? You know, and I think that's actually a pretty good barometer for me. Yeah, it's it's great because I think a lot of people who do actually steal steal, they just think I'm never going to have to pay the consequences for this. Usually the people who are so worried about stealing, usually they're not worried about the other party. Usually they're worried about people's perception of themselves, or at least that's what it seems like to me. What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it can get pathological. I mean, there's something really strange that happens with, you know, plagiarists. I don't know. It's just it's a kind of weird thing that goes on in people's heads that who are, you know, kind of the one thing you'll find is that when you find someone has plagiarized something, it's rarely the only instance. You know, how many times has someone been kind of caught for plagiarism and they go back and they realize, oh, my gosh, there's this he plagiarized everything. You know, every book's got something in it, you know. And so there's this kind of weird pathology to a lot of plagiarists. But I think, you know, there's always the flip side of you'll always get these young writers who are like, well, I want to put my stuff out there, but I'm afraid people will steal it. Right. You know, and Cory Doctorow has a really great way of dealing with that question. He says, you know, your your problem is not piracy. Your problem is obscurity. Like you wish you were good enough that someone wanted to steal your ideas. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now back to Austin Cleon. Usually, I'll tell you this, people re-air parts of our charm or they ask or they ask if they can transcribe and turn it into a blog post. I'm almost surprised by that. The answer is, of course, use it. You know, right. I, yeah, put it in there with a link back. I wish everybody, you know, I wish hundreds of people did that. We would be, we'd be having this conversation on my jet, and, you know. <laughs> well, Howard Aiken, you know, he said, don't worry about 
you know, people stealing your ideas, if your ideas are really any good, you'll have to shove them down people's throats. You know? yes, so uh, that goes true. back to your law professors and, you know, don't, you know, if you really have an original idea, it might be so far out that, you know, no one even wants it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. No kidding. Well, why is it important to share your work anyway? Right. I mean, if you're an artist, why not have that sort of limited mindset that we were just sort of pissing on before I know there's a better word for that I'm just drawing a blank but of sharing and you know what not wanting your ideas to be taken I understand that most people who don't want their ideas to be taken like you said are crap however what about some folks that really don't I mean there's a lot of musicians and things like that that go back and forth accusing each other of of doing that notice it's never the people that do it blatantly like hip-hop artists that really use mashups which everybody loves anyway right but why is it so important to share well, I think that sharing is really how people grow and develop. I mean, being a part of a group of people who are sharing ideas and copying from each other and stealing from each other. I mean, that's how some of our greatest art, uh, you know, kind of came about. There's an idea. We think of creativity as being the domain of the lone genius, right? This like superhumanly talented, gifted right. person. But um, there's kind of a flip side of that, and it's something that the musician Brian Eno calls senius. And what senius is, is it's the communal form of genius. It's, it's actually a whole network of people, a scene in which these special geniuses kind of, you know, work on their craft and come up with their ideas and they kind of rise out of it. Like a great example is, you know, since we were talking about music before, is someone like Bob Dylan. I mean, Bob Dylan starts out, he's just this kid from Hibbing, Minnesota, and he travels around a little bit, and he ends up in the very rich folk scene of uh, Greenwich Village, right? And um, he learns, you know, all kinds of songs off of these other folk singers, and he's running into all these different kinds of people. And the whole scene at the time, Dave Van Ronk, who... You know, they made um, the Coen brothers made that movie uh, kind of based on his life about the folk singer uh, Llewellyn Davis. That movie was kind of based on Dave Van Ronk. And Dave Van Ronk said, you know, we were all stealing from each other. Everybody was lifting, you know, arrangements and all these old songs off each other. Dylan just happened to be the most successful at it. And so there really wasn't any animosity towards Dylan until he became successful, you know, because we were all lifting from each other. We were all part of this stew, but Dylan always had his eye on something else. And so these seniuses, the idea of a senius, that's really how you find your voice is by being in this kind of rich stew of other voices and kind of, you know, taking and pushing things back and forth. And, you know, one of the things I write about and show your work is the way to join a senius to get to your original question is to share your stuff, to share your ideas, to share, you know, the albums you're listening to, share chords, you know, share songs that you've learned. You know, that is how you become a valuable part of one of these networks. And then the network pays you back by making you a member and everyone else is sharing their own stuff. Jason, you built the website for that movie, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, the reason I think Senius, that's pre-internet. Brian Eno coined that term, Senius. I think we're living in this massive Senius right now, which is the internet. You know, the internet kind of runs on, again, not necessarily how original you are, but like, what are you sharing? Um, you know, you take someone like uh, my friend Maria Popova, who runs Brain Pickings. You know, she's a blogger. And what she does is she shares mostly what she reads. I mean, and she calls herself a curator, but I see her as just, you know, she's just a blogger. She's a sharer of ideas. But what she does that's so valuable for everyone is she's created this gigantic repository of stuff that she's read and come across. And she's become a very valuable part of this kind of online seniors and this whole like she's built this whole little empire up just from sharing you know and that's the kind of world that we're living in right now is that the people who share the people who are open about their work they kind of build something you know and the ones that are at home kind of you know keeping everything to themselves they get left out 
Yeah, not only creating yourself, but also sharing to give back to others because otherwise the whole system sort of breaks down. Yeah, and in creating yourself is so much a matter of your context and who you're bumping up against and the, you know, the ideas that you're, you know, that that cultural stew that you happen to be in. I mean, you know, when we look at these great figures from the past, it's very easy to think about them as just arriving fully formed. You know, the the great example in the music has always been like Jimi Hendrix, you know, like, oh, well, here's this alien sent to earth that was just like magically this, this alien, right? But, you know, you start reading about Jimi Hendrix and there's no doubt that he was amazingly talented. But, you know, here's a guy who like cut his chops on the chitlin circuit and like played with some of the great players and like, you know, the Isley brothers and like he was in this stew, you know, he's hanging out with all these great musicians. There was a context for Jimi Hendrix, you know what I mean? And there's a context for everyone, you know, even someone like Da Vinci who, you know, he's probably the closest to a genius that we have. He's still existing in that era in which he could actually you know, get some capital from these things that he was doing, you know, I mean, if Da Vinci had been born 200 years before, you might not have heard about him. Everyone comes from a context and everyone comes from a culture. You know, so much of what we become is based on who we're surrounded by. So now we're talking about embracing influence and thinking of yourself essentially as a mashup of what you let into your life. We're curating ourselves by letting things through consciously or subconsciously as well. Right. This idea is my mother used to drive me nuts because she would always say, garbage in and garbage out. But, you know, now that I'm older, I realize like that what she was talking about is true. If you're only surrounded by garbage, it's going to be hard to process that garbage into anything interesting. And so you really want to surround yourself with the best stuff that you can. Um, you know, uh, there's an idea in economics where if you take someone, if you average the five incomes of the five closest people that someone is around, you usually have a pretty good approximation of what that person's income would be. And I think that same is true of your idea incomes, basically, that, you know, you're you're basically the 10 people you're the closest to, you're almost like an average of their brain capacity, you know. And so it, life becomes a lot about making sure you're surrounding yourself with the right influences, you know, making sure that garbage doesn't go in so garbage doesn't come out. You know, later on, once you kind of find your voice and you've kind of found your work, then you can start kind of processing garbage, you know, then you can start like kind of dumpster diving and finding stuff that the culture is kind of discarded or not looking at anymore. And you can kind of pick it up and use it in your work, you know, but when you're first starting out, like you really want to surround yourself with the best. I always say, you know, if you're ever the smartest person in the room, you need to find another room. Yeah, of course. Where is that from? Well, any, any quote that you don't know who it's from, you can just say it's Mark Twain and everyone will believe you. So Abraham Lincoln. The way I write about it and steal like an artist is, um, uh, you know, this is someone who Judd Apatow actually interviews in, in his book, uh, Harold Ramis, you know, the, the Ghostbuster and the Second City um, graduate and the director of like Groundhog Day and Caddyshack, you know. Um, Harold Ramis said that, you know, Find the most talented person in the room and stand next to them and see if you can be helpful to them. Because in his story, the most talented person in the room was Bill Murray. And, you know, he found him and latched onto him and helped him. And they made those brilliant movies, you know. <laughs> so that idea of like, you know, narrowing in on those people that are shining and, and trying to be helpful to them and then, you know, trying to glean what you can, that's so important. And speaking of the sharing part, or going back to the sharing part anyway, do you share in specific ways? Because it's it's easy to overlook that and go, yeah, everybody share. And then people right. go, okay, I put my work on. It's it's like the e-commerce equivalent of I put up a website, now customers will come, <laughs> and it doesn't work like that, right? You can't just put your song up somewhere on SoundCloud and then hope people find it, right? you got to work at that too. Sharing to me is an act of generosity. 
when you share something, you're thinking about the person on the other end. And so there's a little flow chart in Show Your Work that I drew where it's like, you know, you start out with that question, should I share this? And the next question becomes, is it interesting or is it helpful? And sometimes it's hard, especially if you're delusional, but as so many people seem to be. But, you know, it's hard to tell what could be useful or helpful to others. But I always think that that's a great filter for when you're going to share. It's like, will this be helpful or interesting to someone? And if you can really be real about those questions, then it becomes very easy to know what you should and shouldn't share. And, you know, I think that there's kind of the spectrum of sharing where if you don't share anything, you're like a lurker, you know, or you're, you're just a, a ghost almost. And then if you overshare, you're basically human spam. Yeah. You know, you're these people that, you know, are just constantly telling you about their breakfast and their, you know, <laughs> their life and all this stuff that you could care less about. And then, you know, there's a sweet spot in between there, which I think is a contributor. That's someone who both, you know, adds something to the world and then takes, you know, there's a give and take to the transaction. And I think that's kind of the sweet spot. Someone who is not only putting their stuff out into the world, but they're also, you know, uh, taking stuff in and, and, and shining a light on it. You know, the literary world is a very easy thing to pick on in this context. There are all these young writers who want to be published. And so they send out these terrible poems or short stories off to these literary journals that they never read, you know. And so there's this whole system of people trying to get published in magazines that they don't even read, you know. Yeah, And sure. to me, that is, that's a surefire way towards failure. If you want to have fans, you have to be a fan yourself, and I think about, again, someone like Quentin Tarantino is a perfect example. Here's a guy who loves movies. And so he makes movies with the same love that he has for watching them. And he makes them almost as a fan. And I think that's why it's easy to be a fan of Tarantino, because he's a fan himself. All right, back to Austin Cleon. That's an interesting concept because I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but Jason listens to a ton, and hope, I'm kind of hoping that secretly, you know, balances him out or balances me out, I should say. But it's right. it's true because when we do listen to shows, or when he does, or when I eventually do, I'm like, oh, this is such a cool concept of making your ads like a conversation instead of an ad, or this is a really cool concept of taking a, a funny part of the show and putting it in the beginning to get people in there. How did I not think of that? And then, yeah, making it kind of our own. And, and it, it, you just, you can't do it well if you're not taking in any influence from people that are also good at it. And I think there is a line, though, to go with your mom's traditional wisdom. You could listen to a bunch of really bad ones and then fall into the trap of going, mine's way better than this, I'm doing fine. Oh, yeah, or emulate their bad patterns. That's even know. worse, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know... What you said is interesting to me because it's not like I sit around and read a lot of self-help books, you know, even though I write in that genre. That's why this is such a terrible episode because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, you know, I think what I do love is I love books and I love the world of books. And so my books are full of other books. They just don't happen to be from the genre that I write in. And I think if there's anything interesting or original about them, it's because of that. Now, what about your creative process? Do you have a system for it or are you just kind of naturally, I must write or draw or whatever today and then you like retreat to your your castle tower and do it? Do you have a daily ritual that you recommend for other people? I feel like a lot of creative folks now have systems in place to make it happen. Oh, God, yeah. You know, it's way easier to not work than it is to work. I'm a big fan of Jerry Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld's just, he wakes up and he writes for two hours every day. He does it every day. And every day when he, uh, there's that great kind of life hacker classic 
Jerry Seinfeld calendar thing that goes around that Seinfeld himself doesn't really <laughs> care about. But, you know, there's a thing going around with his name on it that, you know, at the end of your day's work, you make an X on the calendar, right? And then your job just becomes to keep making Xs in the calendar and keep that chain going. And so that idea that you work every day and that kind of daily practice, I think, is is super important to me. And I think it's the thing that I recommend the most to people who want to get started is like you have to make the time every day to practice. I mean, the, the book that really inspires me is a book called Daily Rituals by this guy named Mason Curry. And what Mason did is he just kind of collected the daily routines of all these famous, you know, artists and scientists and different thinkers and doers. And um, what he came up with is not that there's any kind of one size fits all routine, but you do see a lot of times that the people who are really productive have some sort of daily routine or ritual that they go through. I like the John Waters approach, who is also someone who writes every day. He says, uh, I make things up in the morning and I sell them in the afternoon. And so that's kind of what I try to do. I try to do all the all the real creative stuff like writing or making a poem or, you know, putting drawing or putting things together. I try to do that in the morning when I'm fresh. And then the afternoons for, you know, admin stuff like photoshopping or printing or, you know, talking on the phone or doing a podcast or answering emails, stuff like that. What do you do when you don't feel creative? Or when you just aren't feeling it, do you push through it or do you go, okay, tomorrow? I walk away. I mean, when I'm really not feeling it, I just go read because, um, you know, if you can't write, if you turn around and you go read for a bit, it's funny how reading really makes you want to write. Sometimes when I'm really getting, when I'm really out of ideas, I just pretend like I'm in art class and it's like fourth grade and I just make like a collage or something, you know, I just pick up the paper and just cut words out and cut, you know, I pretend like I'm a 15 year old girl with her trapper keeper notebook. And, you know, I'll just like paste, cut and paste pictures and words and stuff and, and just kind of get, you know, just get my hands moving because there's something about when you do stuff and make stuff with your hands, it kind of gets your brain working again. I gave a, a talk a few days ago, I'm, I'm giving a talk right now. It's called the analog desk. And what I have in my studio is I have a digital desk and I have an analog desk. And what the digital desk is, is it's like everyone else's desk. You know, it's got the computer and the scanner and the phone and all the digital stuff on there. And, um, and then I have another desk in the office that's only paper and pens and, you know, scissors and tape and, nothing electronics allowed on that desk. And so the analog desk is where I go when I need to get new ideas, basically. I go work over there for a set amount of time. And then when I do have the ideas, I'll go back over to the computer and I'll start, you know, really typing them out or editing them and stuff like that. But I anyway, I gave this talk called The Analog Desk that's about how to set up your own analog desk which is, it's very, it's a simple talk, but, you know, my point is, is that you, if you make an analog space where you can't be distracted, it's easier to use your hands and to come up with good ideas. And a guy who was writing in the local paper, you know, he sort of said, you know, oh yeah, we're supposed to like sit around while we're in fourth grade and play with, you know, scissors and tape, you know? And I said, yeah, that's exactly it. Actually, you can be as, uh, jaded as you want to about it but the point is is like a lot of the great artists and thinkers that's what they do they use their hands they sit around and they play and they waste time and they stare at the wall and that, that's where the good stuff happens you know and so many of us don't give ourselves the time to just zone out and to make stuff and play and that's where the ideas come from yeah it's really easy to to fall into, well, I have to do all this other stuff, and then you get burned out. I actually schedule shows on certain days at specific times because if I sit there and do email and then I do a bunch of calls and I'm doing a bunch of other meetings and stuff and then I got to do a show, it's like, nah, all right, let's just get through this. And then it's it, you look, you got your priorities backwards because the show is what runs the business, so if I'm half-assing that so I can get to 
tax, you know, accountant meetings. And I'm doing it wrong. We're not going to be right. here for very long. Yeah, I mean, you have to know what is the most important. And I think, you know, I'm tweaking that talk because, like I said, you know, we were talking earlier about being disgusted by your previous self. I'm disgusted by me two days ago that I gave this talk that didn't have the perfect structure, you know. So now I'm thinking about how I'm reorganizing that talk. But for me, the problem has become that the tools that we use to do our work also are communication tools, and they're tools that can interrupt us. So... For me, the problem with the computer isn't necessarily even the delete key or the keyboard or the mouse, even though I do think there are problems with being able to immediately delete things and edit things. But, you know, the problem for me with the computer is that the computer can interrupt you. Like there's always some email. There's always something to look at. You know, it's it's really that it's connected. And I think that what you need is you need that disconnected time, that f- time focused on actually doing work. And so I think that's what, for me, the analog desk is like the stupid human trick or the life hack of, of like tricking myself into actually making something instead of just going on Twitter. You know, because I just, that's the other thing. I don't have a lot of willpower. If I'm in front of the computer, so easy to just go on Twitter, you know, and not write. Yeah. Or, or write on Twitter because writing on Twitter feels like writing, you know. And I go lenient on Twitter sometimes because sometimes, sometimes a tweet will turn into a blog post and a blog post will turn into a book chapter. And so, you know, I try to temper that anti computer talk too much because there has been stuff in my own life that you know, has started on the computer, of course, and, and and been helpful. But I do think that a vast majority of the really good stuff, when I'm really pushing myself and I'm really coming up with those good ideas, it happens in that disconnected space, that kind of meditative, non-distracted mode where I'm really in the zone. What about focus? Do you focus on one thing at a time or do you recommend some sort of balance? My favorite thing to do is to practice productive procrastination. And what I mean by that is I like to have two or more projects going at the same time, and I use them to procrastinate on the other. So when I get sick of project one, I jump over to project two because it's new and fresh and exciting. And I work on that until I get sick of it. And then I jump back over to project one. You know, and then that's fresh and new and I can see what I was doing wrong. And in that way, I'm productive, but I'm also procrastinating. So that's just kind of another like stupid human trick that I do to like to make sure that I'm doing work. Right. You know, if you switch between projects real quick, you trick yourself into thinking it's novel. But then, you know, the other thing I think happens with that is problems you figure out on one project help you in the other project. So sometimes the projects will talk to each other and you'll figure out a solution in one project that you can't use but would work for the other project. That makes sense. It does, yeah. So instead of going, all right, I'm stuck, I'm going to go play Xbox, you go, I'm stuck, I'm going to write something else or I'm going to draw something, which you're already doing anyway. Right, exactly. Like I'm sick of working on this talk, I'm going to go make a poem. Whereas if I was only in the business of making poems, like poems would feel like work. But compared to writing a talk, making a poem is like fun. You know, if I'm writing a book, writing a talk might seem really fun. You know what I mean? So, but it's all stuff I have to get done. Speaking of the process, tell us before we wrap about your new notebook, your journal, your new uh, product, for lack of a better description. Right. Yeah, my new piece of merch. Um, so I just, um, I'm releasing a journal called the Steel Icon Artist Journal. And what the journal is supposed to be is it's a notebook that you carry around and it has prompts in it. It also has blank pages, but it has these kind of creativity prompts that are supposed to kind of jump your, you know, imagination and kind of kickstart things for you. And, you know, you might be saying like, well, why would I carry around a paper journal? But I think as we've talked about earlier in this conversation, the beautiful thing about a journal is it's just kind of this walled world that you can kind of open up and dive into. So, you know, if you go to a cafe with just your journal, you can have that kind of quiet, dedicated space 
that we were talking about where you can kind of let your ideas come forth. And so uh, the journal should be out um, soon if it's not already out when this airs. And it's been one of my favorite projects I've done recently. And it's based off of my other two books, Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work. Great. Thanks so much, Austin. And uh, we'll, of course, link to that in the show notes, so no worries there. And we'll link to your other books as well if people want to catch up on uh, stealing like an artist, showing your work, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you very much for your time. This has been wonderful. Oh, I, I had a blast. Thanks for having me. I really like that one, huh, Jason? You were a fan too, eh? Dude, I'm a super fan. I love this guy. I actually read his book before we even booked him. So I'm just, I, it was, I was tickled pink to have a chat. Yes, I'm sure. And I, I saw you guys during the break comparing bookstore notes or something like that. So I know you guys had fun with that one, even while I was doing my thing over here in studio. Yeah, he's on, he's on a book tour right now. So definitely check him out. If you're like in any of the cities that he's going to come hang out and, you know, have yeah, a beer. Absolutely. And I, I love the productive procrastination. I feel like I kind of do that by accident, but I always felt guilty about it because I'm like, oh, I'm just procrastinating. But now that you mentioned it, it yeah, I'm just working on multiple things. I don't think that my ADD would let me focus on only one thing. It's just not going to happen. I got to do multiple things. So finding out that other artists do that and that it's productive is great. And the fact that, look, we're all embracing other people's influences. So instead of trying to deny it, think of yourself as a remix, a mashup of what you let into your life, which makes curating what you let into your life that much more important, a.k.a. the five closest friends, a.k.a. what podcasts you listen to, <clears throat> etc. So, uh, yeah, I dug this one. I hope everybody else did as well. And, of course, the show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Austin on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as his new book and his old books. And you can tap the album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You want to follow me. Trust me. I'm funnier there than I am here, which isn't saying much. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Sold out a few months in advance. If you're thinking about it, hit us up. We don't need to hard sell you. Like I said, we're sold out, so just get the info and move forward from there. Subscribe in iTunes. We've got our iPhone and Android apps. Write us a review. We will love you, especially especially me and Jason. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Tell your friends the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. <laughs>